Well, John the Baptist introduces everyone to Jesus, making sure that they know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away sin. John's Advent mission was to bear testimony that Jesus is the light who shines life in this dark world. Jesus is the preexistent Word who has become flesh and walks among us, that the world would see and know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. John's message was for sinners to repent of their sin and to turn their hearts towards the righteousness of God, to seek first the kingdom of God. And that's what John's baptism symbolized. People who had come to this point of repenting and giving their lives to God, following God. So John's disciples are men who have repented of sin, turned to God, and been baptized. Their hearts have been made a straight path on which to receive the Lord. John is clear that his disciples aren't really his disciples. He is to hand them off. He did not gather a personal following, but followers of God who would follow Jesus when the time came. John said, I must decrease while Jesus must increase. And John would personally introduce his disciples to Jesus. What happened is exactly what John the Baptist wanted to happen. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. John is saying something simple and profound at the same time. These two disciples follow Jesus to where he's staying. They, they walk down a path to a place, but they also become followers of Jesus. These two men become followers of Jesus. This seems to us, on the surface, a bit of an awkward conversation, the way it's recorded. Again, the, the statements are simple but profound. Jesus' first words in John's gospel are to two of John the Baptist's disciples whom John has prepared to receive the Messiah. You see, that's the exact plan of God. That's exactly what was supposed to happen. And he asks a very open question. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? What a great question. And what are they seeking? I don't think they quite know. They call him teacher, rabbi, which means they're seeking to learn something from him. So they ask, where are you staying? Which, you know, I, I've heard people say, well, that's just kind of a witless. They didn't know what to say. They, were, they just said, so I don't know, where are you staying, Jesus? As, you know, like it's common talk. That's not what's going on here. They're dead on track with the idea that he's the rabbi and he's the one that they want to learn from. Remember, they're following Jesus, the teacher. They perceive him to be a rabbi. John has said this amazing thing about them. So they're seeking to go where he goes and sit at his feet and learn. And what is it that you think they hope to learn? Well, back to the original question from Jesus. What is it that you're seeking? They probably want to know why John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because that is something profoundly worth knowing. So they do exactly that. Jesus invites them along saying, Come and you will say, What are you seeking? Come and you will say, What will they say? A little campsite with a little fire and a, maybe a log to sit on? No. They will see what they are truly seeking. That is what people find when they follow Jesus. 
they will hear the truth from the powerful word of God. They will be enlightened by the true light of God. They will spend the day with Jesus, the Son of God, till about 4 p.m. in the afternoon. That's the 10th hour, 6 a.m. being the first hour of the day. And at this point, we want to remember that the written word of God is alive and active with its resurrection power. Which means that Jesus, through his written word, is saying to everyone here this morning, come and see. Come and see what? Come and see what your heart is seeking. And what is that? I don't know what your heart is seeking. You may not consciously know what your heart is seeking, but if you will follow him, Jesus will fulfill your heart's desire this very morning. If you do not know Jesus already, let me introduce him to you. Because he is personally inviting you to know him this Christmas in this word that you are hearing. That's a spiritual reality. Andrew goes on to introduce Peter to Jesus. One of these two disciples is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. John assumes that we already know Simon Peter, though we haven't met him in the account yet, because he's the prominent one, right? The other is likely the Apostle John himself. As the author, John tends to hide himself uh, in the gospel. Obviously excited about meeting Jesus, Andrew runs as fast as he can to his older brother Simon, and Andrew tells Simon, we've found the Messiah. Now there's a lot in that phrase. We've found the Messiah. And then John gives his Gentile readers this parenthetical note that Messiah is the Hebrew word for the anointed one, and Christ is the Greek word for the anointed one. They mean the exact same thing, just different languages. When we think of Jesus being Christ, us today, our understanding of him usually includes his saving work. We wouldn't think of Christ without thinking of his completed work, his death, burial, and resurrection. Because we look back to his first advent, historically. That's where we are in timing. Andrew doesn't have those categories yet. When Andrew identifies Jesus as the Messiah, he's thinking of Jesus as the one promised by God throughout all of the Old Testament, God's anointed one. He's the anointed one that he sings about in the Psalms, that he's read about in the law, the fulfill of Israel's prophet, priest, and king. That's what Andrew has in mind, and he's right. Isaiah prophesied of him, saying, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And the angel used these words when foretelling Jesus' birth to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him a throne of his father David, 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Andrew brings his brother to Jesus, and he introduces him to Jesus. We don't, we don't hear from Simon here. We hear from Simon later, but Simon hears from Jesus here in verse 42. There is this principle in Scripture, we learned it all the way back at creation in our account in Genesis, that naming something indicates two things. See if you remember this. First, it indicates rightful authority. God creates things, and then he names them, because he has the rightful authority to do that. Second, it indicates an understanding, a knowing of the thing being named. God, having created something, knows what it's about and gives it an appropriate name. Because God understood the man he created him, he named him Adam. So when God gave Adam dominion over all the animals in the garden, Adam named each animal accordingly with his God-given authority to do so. We should keep that in mind when Jesus tells Simon, your name is Simon, and it's a good name, but I'm naming you Peter. I have rightful authority over you, and I have understanding of who you will be. You see, Cephas is Aramaic, and Peter, or Petros, is Greek, meaning rock, which points to the life-changing power of Jesus. Early on, Peter's impulsive and unstable. He's anything but a rock. But later, we will hear Peter declare to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to which Jesus will respond, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's always more going on than we can imagine whenever we introduce people to Jesus. Andrew seemed to know that. He was driven to introduce people to Jesus. Almost every time we see the name Andrew in the Gospels, he's introducing someone to Jesus. First, his brother Peter, then Nathaniel, later, a boy with five loaves and two fishes, and after that, a, a whole group of Greeks he introduces to Jesus. You see, we want to be like Andrew. We want to be like Andrew. Christmas is not a what, it's a who. Teaching people about Christmas is not teaching them something, it's teaching them someone. What could possibly be better at Christmas time than to introduce people surrounded by the what of Christmas holiday to the one who holds the meaning of Christmas? The babe born in Bethlehem who shines like a bright morning star and who will save his people from their sin. I just made that word, I just made that sentence up. And it sounds like lyrics to a Christmas song, doesn't it? Pray for them. Find ways to care for them and share with them. You know, the babe born in America. We're to, as we pray for and care for and share with people, we're, we're sharing with them the true source of peace with God and with man, that, that vertical and that horizontal. That, that kind of reads like a Christmas card, doesn't it? That God has come to establish peace with men through Christ. So much of the world's secular and commercial Christmas holiday still comes pretty close to sounding right. But it is knowing Jesus and having your sins forgiven so that you are at peace and not under the judgment of God that closes the gap and makes it right. 
Without him, it's not Christmas at all. That's why I think Christmas is a great time to introduce people to Jesus. Philip is going to go on to introduce Nathaniel to Jesus, but not until Jesus introduces himself first to, to Philip. Beginning in verse 43, Jesus is leaving Bethany, which is just above the Dead Sea, where John has been baptizing. He heads north to Bethsaida, to Galilee, located northeast of the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where Andrew and Peter are from. There, or on the way there, Jesus finds and introduces himself to Philip. Jesus summons Philip to follow him. And he does. And Philip's a good inviter, too. Listen to how Philip identifies Jesus to Nathanael in verse 45. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. That's quite an introduction. Everything upon which the Jewish faith rests is fulfilled in this Jesus of Nazareth. That's what Philip tells Nathanael. The law and the prophets. Everything that they're about, everything they point to, everything they teach us, we found him. Christmas is a hymn. How can Philip introduce Jesus to Nathanael that way? Because Philip has been raised and taught and studied for himself God's promise of a Messiah written in his Hebrew Bible, what we call our Old Testament. Philip says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. He learned as a disciple of John the Baptist that Jesus is the Word of God become flesh and that the light of God is shining in men's hearts. And Philip has personally experienced Jesus in these ways. Jesus will remind all of his disciples of this very same fact that he is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament in Luke chapter 24. Remember, this is at the end of Luke's gospel, and his disciples are greatly distressed by his crucifixion and did not yet know that he had been resurrected. So when Jesus appeared to them on the road to Emmaus, he chided them for despairing instead of hoping in the true hope that they had, which was theirs in the gospel, which they should have known from the Old Testament scriptures. And so he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things to enter into his glory? And he continued on to remind them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and even the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the exact source that Philip just cited to Nathaniel. Then with patience, Jesus lovingly taught his disciples what they needed to know, saying, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses of these things. Andrew and Philip do not yet understand the salvific significance of introducing people to Jesus. But they do believe that they are introducing people to the anointed Son of God who will fulfill all of God's promises to his people, which includes salvation. Now, Nathaniel was skeptical, to say the least. 
Why? Why is Nathaniel skeptical? Does he not know the promises of God? The promise of a Messiah? Yes, he knows those things. He knows those things as well as Philip. And he is waiting, as is all of Israel, for God's Messiah. So why the cool response? Well, because there have been many counterfeits. Men claiming to be the Messiah just to gather a following of their own, for their own selfish purposes. It's why the, it's why the Pharisees in Jerusalem sent out uh, the priests and the Levites to inquire of John, Who are you? Are you another counterfeit? And so, Nathaniel's kind of tuned that way. Yeah, 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 another Messiah, sure. Hence, he's snide comment about Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Surely God's good Messiah will have a better origin than the podunk, out-of-the-way, nasty town of Nazareth. See, Nathaniel is wisely skeptical. It's Philip's job to witness to Jesus. It's Jesus' job to convince. All Philip can say is, come and see. Come and see. It's Jesus' job to convince. And look at Jesus' look at Jesus' interaction with Nathanael, beginning in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Now, Jesus is not flattering Nathanael. He's characterizing Nathanael to Nathanael because he already knows Nathanael. That's what's taking place here. Just as Jesus knows us even before we're introduced to him. And Nathanael, he's disarmed. He's disarmed. That's why he asks, how do you know me? I don't know you. How do you know me? And Jesus answers, in effect, I knew you before we met. And I saw you even before Philip told you about me. I've always known you, Nathaniel. That's, that's what Nathaniel learns. And Nathaniel's skepticism falls away. Drops right to the ground. We can, have, we can have one of two responses to the realization that Jesus knows us. One is to cover up and resist. Because we know what we're like. The other is Nathaniel's response. It's the right Christmas response. He receives Jesus. He receives Jesus. Rabbi, I want to be your disciple and follow you because you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. I mean, it's kind of interesting. See, Nathaniel embodies the receiving of Jesus that we think about, about at Christmas time. That people should receive Jesus. Nathaniel is an Israelite indeed. He's looking for the promises of God to be fulfilled. He's awaiting the advent, the coming of God's Messiah. The Abrahamic covenant of blessing is being fulfilled in the new covenant in the arrival of Christ. We see it happening right here. Nathaniel receives God's powerful living word made flesh. Nathaniel is enlightened by the true light 
of life that is shining before him and speaking to him. And Jesus promises that he's going to see even more. Nathaniel, you're going to see much, much more. Greater things. Look at verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? It's written as a question. It's written as a question to be emphatic. It's really a statement. It's because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree that you believe. You know that I know. Something that nobody else can do. But you're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See, Thomas is impressed by Jesus' greatness, specifically displayed in that Jesus knew him before he met him. That's the evidence of Jesus' deity. So what even greater things is Jesus promising Thomas that he'll see? Beginning in the very next chapter, for the rest of John's gospel, Nathaniel will see the miraculous works of Christ for the next three years. He will see Jesus turn water into wine, heal the sick, give sight to the blind, calm the raging storm, cast out demons, feed the 5,000, raise the dead, and teach with authority so profound truths that confound the wise. And why does Jesus do such miraculous works? So that by his exercise of power and authority over nature and spirits and life and death, he will prove himself to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He does these works so that he would be known and after three years of miracles, Nathaniel will see even greater things. He will see Jesus die on the cross to atone to God for Nathaniel's sins. And he will be introduced, reintroduced to Jesus after his resurrection from the dead, winning eternal life to give to Nathaniel when he believes. Do you see? Nathaniel thinks it's a great thing. To see Jesus who knows him. But Jesus knows it is a greater thing for Nathaniel to know him as Savior and Lord and King. That's the far greater thing. That's what Jesus tells all of the disciples in verse 51 when he refers and references Jacob's ladder from Genesis chapter 28. Turn back to Genesis chapter 28 with me. Genesis chapter 28, beginning with Jacob's dream in verse 11. And Jacob came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, 
and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. See, the angels of God, his messengers use this vision of a staircase to come, come to earth, to complete their assigned works that they've been given, and then return back to heaven. And Jesus fulfills the vision of this staircase, this ladder, because he has come down from heaven to do the work of God. And what work has God the Father assigned to his Son? To fulfill the promises of God of a redeemed people, a home for those redeemed people, and a blessing which is God with his people. In verse 51, the word you, this is back in John. In John, verse 51, the word you is plural. It's used twice and it's plural. Jesus is no longer speaking only to Nathaniel, but to all disciples who believe in him. On the cross, Jesus will pay the debt of sin for all who believe in him. In his resurrection from the grave, Jesus secures eternal life to give to all who believe in him. And at his first coming, at the first advent of Christ, Jesus became Emmanuel, God with us, the blessing. Jacob, in Genesis, saw the staircase in a vision and said, this is the house of God, God's present here. And this is the gateway to heaven. It's the access point. And it is Jesus who is God's actual presence. Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus who is the means of access to God by faith in his completed work. His death, his burial, his resurrection. And at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in Acts chapter 1, Nathaniel and the other disciples would watch Jesus ascend into heaven, returning to his rightful position at the right hand of his Father, as if ascending on an invisible staircase. When you are introduced to Jesus, you are introduced to the one who has and will fulfill all of the promises of God. The one who has come and has accomplished the work of God, the Father sent him to complete. He's done it. That's why he was allowed to return, having completed his mission, which is your salvation from sin, if you would believe. And then Jesus leaves one more matter for us to consider. It's that term, the Son of Man. You will see, Nathaniel, and all disciples, the Son of Man. See, the Son of Man 
you read those words and it points to Jesus' humanity, which is, a, which is one of the great truths of Christmas, right? God came down and became man. But it's more than that. Son of man here is a technical term. That Jesus, and only Jesus, uses of himself. Jesus is the only person who refers to Jesus this way. Son of man. It's a reference from Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. You should look at this. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. In verse 13, now Daniel is pointing ahead to things to come as they are revealed to him in night visions by God. And he receives these visions of four beasts and their destruction. And then he's given this vision of a son of man in verse 13. I saw in the night visions... And what he's going to see, I'll just tip you off here, what he's going to see here is the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection. That's what's being described. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So you see what's happening. After his resurrection, Jesus ascends greeted by a cloud, which is the Father, returns to heaven, and is presented to the Father, the Ancient of Days. Verse 14, and to him, this one like the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is Daniel's vision of the ascension of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man, presented to God the Father the Most High in heaven, and God gives Jesus an everlasting dominion. He gives him all power and all authority over all things. And Jesus will exercise all authority that is his at his second advent. When he comes again. At his first advent, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. To redeem sinners who place their trust, hope, and reliance upon him. The Gospels record for us the account of Jesus' first coming. From his descending from heaven till his ascending to heaven. But there is a second advent that we still look forward to in our future. Jesus will come again. He will come as the judge of all the earth. He will come with dominion authority to render judgment. He will, in all righteousness and justice, consign those who have rejected Him and do not believe in Him and have not entered His kingdom He will consign them to an everlasting hell. That is their just judgment. And he will righteously and justly gather all who have believed in him to himself to be with him in paradise forever. 
Jesus is our blessed hope. There's a reason to introduce people to Jesus. If not before, you have been introduced to Jesus this very morning in this very word of God. You have been introduced to your coming judge. Fall on your knees before him. Repent of your sin before him. You can no longer claim ignorance of him. You can't unhear the words you've heard. He knows you. He knows your very heart, and you cannot hide from him. But now that you have met him, why would you want to hide from him? Turn to him and know him and delight in him. He came to seek you and to save you. Receive him. Welcome him. Know him. Everyone, deep in their hearts, wants to be truly known by somebody. Jesus truly knows you, and he loves you still. Know him and have him as your Savior. He will not reject those who come to him. It's a Bible promise. He says it himself. I will in no way cast you out that come to me by faith. So you don't have to fear his rejection if you would come to him now. But you should fear his coming to you as a judge. When he comes again, if you would come to him, you will find him merciful and forgiving true and loving, powerful on your behalf, and you will not be disappointed in Him. Some Christmases, you've been just a little bit disappointed, but you will never be disappointed in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have sent Your Son that we might know You. And Father, that your word introduces him to us, that we might know him and have life. Father, help us. Give us wisdom and knowledge. Give us clarity of understanding that the Christmas of this world is no Christmas at all, but the Christmas of knowing Christ is life itself. Help us in this way, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.